today we're going to talk about what election is, what predestination is. These are two issues that come up and are rather important in Scripture. Um, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination. We're going to answer questions like, does predestination mean that I have no real choice? If people are predestined, does that mean they have no choice? Um, here's another question. Does God really want everyone to be saved? Does he genuinely want all people to, to be saved? And here's an interesting one. The doctrine of election, right? Election. How unconditional exactly is election? Um, now for those who are my Calvinist friends, who hopefully will still be friends later, the, the doctrine of election is in Calvinism, unconditional election. It, it's one of, the, it's one of the, the letters of tulip. I think it's the U, probably. I'm just being silly. But yes, the, the unconditional election. Now, I want to give you a confession first. I am, this topic is massive. And when you, when you delve into these issues and you start hearing the debates and the discussions, it starts to get rather complicated. And it branches out really quickly. And you started talking about election. And pretty soon you're talking about what the difference between libertarian free will and combat, compatibilist free will and, and all sorts of weird, interesting concepts that just get a little bit too much sometimes, at least for one message, that's for sure. Um, so I myself am still trying to learn and get these topics, um, but I do have positions on them and I want to share those openly. And the goal here, my main goal is this, I want to affirm what scripture says as true and then say, so what does that mean? That, that's the general approach we're going to have. Of course, everyone's going to say they do that, <laughs> but that's of course my goal. Just affirm biblical truth, not pick a side and defend one side and attack the other. That's not really the goal. Um, so first, let's, let's look at this. What is the difference between predestination and election? Of course, this topic comes up because we're going through Romans verse by verse, and the topic of predestination and election come up in Romans 8, so we're tackling them separately. Um, I think that election is kind of like a piece of predestination, that they're related. The two are connected, but they're not the same thing. Election has to do with choosing. I elect you. I elect this person, or I elect this group of people, or I elect this nation. So it's about selecting. I select the people. That's election. And predestination has to do with what future those people will have. Think about that. Election is about who. Predestination is about what. Election is about the person. Predestination is about the destiny of the person. So in election, I might choose who goes on the trip with me. After, after church tonight, I will go to the taco truck. I'm going to elect. You know, Randy's coming with me. Lori's coming with me. You know, Polly, you're not invited. <laughs> so I've elected. And then the destination, of course, is the taco truck. That's the predestination of the elect. We are going to the taco truck. So you see that the elect are those who are who are chosen, and then their destination of future glorification in Christ, of salvation, all that sort of thing. So hopefully that makes sense. I think that's the simplest way to, to see the two, to, two as a different thing. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to go through several verses that talk about election so we can just kind of get a biblical view of what the Bible says about the topic. I want to show some variety here because the Bible talks about Christ as being the elect one. It talks about um, corporate election of nations being elect. Israel is the chosen nation of God. Um, we have the term elect, it just means chosen. And we have God choosing lots of people for lots of different purposes in scripture. And sometimes it seems he's choosing people for salvation. So let's, let's look at this. Um, there is such thing as an elect people when it comes to 
um, those who are knowing of knowing Christ and who are saved. Mark thirteen twenty, Mark thirteen twenty. Jesus says, "And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, for the sake of the elect, whom He chose, He shortened the days." So there's this group called the elect that are in this future time. Jesus is talking here about, I believe, a future time, the, the tribulation time. Um, Romans 8.33, this is where we're at in our study of Romans. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's going to bring a, an, an accusation against the one whom, the ones whom God has chosen when God justifies them? Are you going to overrule God's justification of them? Of course not. But they are the elect. There is such a thing as those who are chosen by God. God is not merely a passive participant in our salvation. He also chose. This is what this scripture is teaching. Ephesians 1.4, it says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This election is, is something that happened before creation. It was already known. The full plan and the selection, the election of who would be saved. And this is how I take this passage. Matthew twenty two fourteen, it says, For many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. That's an interesting concept. I think this fits very well with my understanding of the theology of, of where I'm not a, not a Calvinist, although I probably sound like one so far. <laughs> but, uh, but I think this fits well with that theology personally. And, and that's that same word, eklektoi in the Greek, the chosen, chosen ones, you know. Um, Acts 13, 48, it says, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. They hear the gospel, and as many of those who heard the gospel that were appointed to eternal life, they believed. That's a really interesting verse, isn't it? They were appointed, and then they believed. That's, I think it's really interesting. Now, some people would say election is only a corporate thing. God is, this is a, a typical Arminian view, that Ar- Arminian, not from Armenia, with the A-R-M-E, Armenia, no, Arminian, from Jacob Arminius, his perspective on things. Anyway, this guy, he thought, okay, no, people are elect, but they're elect in a corporate sense. God chooses simply whoever is going to believe in Jesus. That's his choice. I choose whichever ones of you believe in Jesus. You're the elect. You're the chosen. Now, do you believe in Jesus? Then you're one of the chosen. I do think that that's a very interesting way to reconcile these issues. But when you get to Acts 13, 48, it, it, it seems like there's more of an individual aspect here. As many as have been appointed to eternal life believed. Some say it's only corporate. Um, this is one verse that makes election look like it, it is, maybe it, it's corporate. We'll get there in Romans 9 about corporate election. But this looks like it's individual too. And it's hard to imagine in the mind of God who knows all things, selecting broad categories of people without any view towards the individual. Because <laughs> he knows the individual. He knows everything that they're going to do. He knows who will select him. So what do I conclude? Um, I personally think, just from these verses, there's actually a lot more on election. There's many, many verses we could quote. Um, You've got to believe the doctrine of election. Some version of the doctrine of election. If you're a Christian, if you trust the Bible, you've got to believe some doctrine regarding election. I conclude this, that corporately and individually, we have God choosing people. And this choosing, yeah, he chooses nations. Yeah, he chooses uh, groups of people. Yeah, he chooses categories of people. But it seems as though this election extends to individuals as well. 
That's what it seems to be saying. I mean, does this mean automatically that we don't choose? Well, that would be an assumption someone else is making. That's not what it says. So far, we've only said God chooses. We're not saying humans don't make a choice. And if you assume that it's one or the other, well, you're going to have to pick God because his choice will trump ours any, any day of the week. But if there's a way to marry the two together, that God makes a choice and we make a choice, then I don't think we're going to have a trouble, any trouble there. And I think uh, how he chooses Israel is, an, ex- is an, ex- an example of this sort of thing. He takes Israel, he chooses them, he simply calls them, my people whom I have chosen, you know, he calls them out of Egypt, but then he gives them the law of Moses and he asks them, do you accept these laws? And Israel chooses God as their God. So you could say, well, did, it, did God choose Israel or did Israel choose God? Well, the answer is both. The answer is both. Okay, so now let's get right into the nitty-gritty. Is this election really, truly, totally unconditional, as my Calvinist brothers and sisters would say? Calvinism would say that this election is not based on anything in you or anything about you. In fact, they would, when pressed about it, probably say that God chooses who will be saved just through the mysterious counsel of his will, not based on anything about them at all. And they say mysterious counsel, like you can't, don't even try to figure this out. It's, he just chooses. It almost sounds arbitrary. That, that's how it comes across to me. Like it's for no reason whatsoever, except for his ultimate glory, but certainly nothing about the person. I would say, well, this election's not entirely unconditional. Like God didn't choose rocks for salvation. Right? He didn't choose air molecules. He didn't choose ideas. He chose people. So you have to qualify in some sense. You've got to be a, a person, a human, a fallen human. So there's some sense of not totally, completely unconditional. But I think that there's more to it than this. Scripture seems to give us two things about election that we have to remember. One, election is in him. In him. This verse comes up a lot. In fact, I already read it to you. Ephesians 1.4 said, just as he chose us in him, that I was chosen, but I was chosen in Christ. I wasn't chosen simply arbitrarily on my own. I was chosen in Jesus. So the selection of me, the choice of me, has to do with me being connected to Christ. So let's remember this. 2 Timothy 1.9 says this as well. It says that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So God chose us in Christ. And we know it's not according to works. So we know this about election. God does not choose people based on how good they are, how great they'll be, how wonderful they are. He chooses us in Christ. This marries well with the idea that God is choosing those who are going to put their faith in Christ. I don't think that's the whole story, but I think it does marry well with that idea. And in that, I don't think we have to go with the Calvinist view. Um, So that's one thing. Election is in Christ. It's in him. Um, Isaiah, in fact, Isaiah 42.1, long before we get to the New Testament and all this specific teachings on election, we have this statement. Behold my servant, speaking of Jesus, whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. That Jesus is the elect one. Jesus is the, and this is where the Arminian position would be, and I'm, I'm not really exactly Calvinist or Arminianist, but, but we're, uh, we're kind of like in the middle where they're both looking at us going, you can't be there. Um, but, but the Arminian position is going to say, 
Jesus is the chosen one and God looking through the corridors of time sees you putting your faith in Jesus and in Jesus he chooses you. This sort of sees God as responding to our faith but from eternity past. That would be that perspective. Um, there is some merit to this, right? There's some good reason to think, I mean, I'm chosen in him. I'm not just chosen, period. I'm chosen in him. So there's some connection to this, to this, my connection to Jesus connecting me to election. But also, scripture says that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. This is in 1 Peter 1, 2. 1 Peter 1, 2 says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, depending on your translation, the word elect might be in verse 1. But if you follow it, even in the original language, the election is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And this is for salvation, I think, right? It says, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. This is a salvation election. I had a Bible college teacher years ago when I was much younger in the Lord and, and certainly less knowing in his word. Um, and he said, after reading to us these verses about election being according to the foreknowledge, there's another one I'll read to you in a minute. He says to us and announces to the class, class, election has nothing to do with foreknowledge. And I remember sitting in the class and it was one of those moments where you're like, I think the teacher's just completely wrong. <laughs> it says elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And I didn't understand Calvinism, Arminianism, or any of these debates back then. So now looking back, I go, okay, well, he was probably a Calvinist and he wanted to protect us from the Arminian view that God chooses us according to whom he foreknew would be in Christ or something. Now you see if elections according to God's foreknowledge, this is the reason why in Calvinism last week we talked about this, why foreknowledge they take to mean foreloved or basically chosen. God picked you. Well, because if I'm chosen according to God's foreknowledge, is it what he knew about me? Well, then maybe he factors in my faith in election. And so it's not, un, not completely unconditional. Maybe it's conditioned, at least in some sense, upon me choosing Christ as well. So there's a, that, you know, that marriage of choices. Um, also, Romans 8.29 related to this. It says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So there's, there's a sense here with predestinations connected to foreknowledge, elections connected to foreknowledge. That's why a Calvinist has to view foreknow as something other than knowing ahead of time. It's got to be relational. It's got to be a selection. But we went into that in detail last week, and you can check out the video. <clears throat> so I think it was called What Does God Know? I think that was the title of the video, if I remember correctly. Um, so here's what we know about election. Election is not according to works. It's not according to your good deeds. You're not chosen because of your goodness. But it is related to God's foreknowledge, and it's related to being in Christ. So if you want to say it's completely unconditional, then that, that seems to be going too far. Is not conditioned upon goodness and works, but God's foreknowledge and being in Christ, these are connected. Now, this is where a Calvinist, um, like I said, th th this branches out. Calvinism, it, it will branch out into other areas as well. So let me branch out if you're not, if you're not lost yet. I'm going to branch out. In Calvinism, it's often, it's often presented that faith is, is, is a work. Um, this is this this comes up in the conversation because you go well God foreknew my faith and so He chose me because He knew I would believe, and so they said ah so 
So God saw that you were better than the other person because you would believe. He saw there was some goodness in you that you would, you would trust in Christ. The problem with this line of reasoning is that the Calvinist is making faith into a work, into a goodness work, whereas faith is nothing like that. So there is one particular proof text that they'll use, and it's Ephesians 2.8. So I want to address it real quick. Ephesians 2.8 says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And they say, see, faith is a gift of God. God didn't just see your faith. He decreed that you would believe. He gave you your faith. It's the gift of God. Now, this is where a little bit of knowledge of the Greek actually helps. So, how many of you guys are bilingual? You know, anything other than English? All right, so this will be easy for you, and for the rest of us, not so much. The word faith in Ephesians 2.8 is a feminine word. The word that is neuter. This means that the that, not of yourselves, is referring to salvation, not faith. If, if that not of yourselves referred to faith, it would be feminine as well. Because you can tie words together like that in, the, in Greek or Spanish or lots of other languages. But not English. Because we're gender neutral. <laughs> so Ephesians 2, let me read it to you again. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that, meaning being saved by grace through faith, that whole thing, that's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. So it's not that faith is the gift, but rather salvation is a gift, which makes sense. I mean, that's just consistent with all of what scripture tells us about salvation. It's a free gift of God through Jesus Christ. Faith establishes grace. It doesn't fight it somehow. So if God sees your faith ahead of time and and makes decisions based upon that, there's not really a biblical problem with that. Um, But I will have some other problems with the Arminian view in a second, so, so bear with me. So I'll start Calvinist, then I'll sound Arminian, and then I'll be sounding Calvinist later, and then maybe somewhere in the middle we'll find the truth. Um, and, and, and I'll take questions afterwards, but what I want to do now is move on to the topic of predestination for a few minutes. Predestination um, is about, again, it's about the future of the elect person. The people who are elect, their, their future is a certain future. They're going to be um, forgiven of their sins. They're going to become adopted, be children of God. They're going to be um, sanctified while they're in this world, eventually given eternal life in heaven and likeness of the Son, and all, all these sorts of things coming in our future glory. Um, but let's, let's look at that. Uh, Acts 4, 27 and 28 says this. Here's a verse about predestination. Okay, I'll just read it to you. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. That's actually the same word, predestined. That even Herod and Pontius Pilate, this is not about the predestination of people, but of events that they were going to do what God determined was going to be done. Now, my view, I I simply assume that the scripture seems to make it clear that people are making free will choices, yet God is in control of the moment, and God is in control of the eventual destinies and events that are happening in life. Still allows free will, that's that's my position. Um, And that seems to be what's being taught here. So we have a strong view of God's sovereignty, don't we? God's not just watching things happen and reacting to them. He's also got this as part of his plan. Romans 8, 29, and 30 talks about predestination as it relates to us. Not just events, but but our future. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. We're getting a view that this is what's happening in the salvation of individuals is something that has long ago been laid out and planned out. Ephesians 1.5, it says, Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. We have been predestined to adoption. Notice the, predest- the election is of, of people. Predestination is about a destiny or a destination. <laughs> Our predestination is to adoption. Ephesians 1.11, it says, In him also we've obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God has a, a, a the way I understand the scripture is that God has a view of all of, of all of time and all of reality and everything that's going on. And he has a special agenda and plan for the, for the saved during this time. This is why in Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good, but only to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Not for everybody, but for those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. So God has a set future for those who are in Christ. This future is still in Jesus. It's still seen as in him. That connection is there in Ephesians as well. But this leads us to some questions, doesn't it? It's natural to wonder, if God selects who's going to be saved, does he select the unsaved in the same sense? And there are some Calvinists, only some, who would believe in double predestination or on one side, they'd say predestin- predestination, and the other side, reprobation, or the, the decision of God to pass over certain individuals, that sort of thing. But I think that there's a problem with this. If we take a theology that says that God selecting some means that he doesn't actually want the others to be saved. Now, we're, now God's the only willed agent, the only agent involved that has a will here. I'm just picking some for salvation, picking some for not salvation, and then they're just sort of playing it out as I watch. There's a problem. Um, it requires us to read several passages of Scripture in really weird ways. We start having to reinterpret lots of verses where it seems like God is appealing very honestly. I want you to come to me. I'm calling you to come to me. If only you would repent. If only you would come. And that seems to be a genuine call. So here's the question. Does God only want some to be saved? What I want to do now is I'm going to survey a few scriptures that I would say this seems to refute that idea of Calvinism, that God only really, really, really wants in his secret will, wants certain people to be saved. I think that that's not true. And um, I'm I'm going to share these scriptures, but I'm going to share with you what I think is the best Calvinist response to what I'm going to say. So you could hear both sides, hopefully, and think it out. So 1 Timothy Chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, it says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Off just a casual reading of the passage, it seems like God wants everyone to be saved. And that the only thing really keeping people from salvation is their own bondage to sin and their own choice to reject the gospel as they hear it. Now, what is the Calvinist response to this? The Calvinist response will back up a couple verses and read 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. And they'll use this to try to interpret the rest. So let me show you. Here's 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. For who? All men. 
But then in verse 2, I'm going to be the Calvinist for a second, it names categories of men. For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. And they would say, they would say, God doesn't want every person saved. He wants people from every category saved. This is going to be a very common Calvinist interpretation of lots of passages. People from every category. So for kings, so God wants kings to be saved. He wants, you know, people in authority to be saved. But here's my response. I think this is an impossible interpretation of 1 Timothy. I don't, I don't think you can fairly interpret it this way because this would mean that God wants not only some people in authority to be saved, but everyone who's in authority to be saved. Let's read it again. And let's say that verses 1 and 2 is, is, is what verses 3 and 4 are about, right? They're saying verses 1 and 2 are telling us who verses 3 and 4 are about. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Do I, so am I supposed to pray for everyone who's in authority or for only at least one representative from each category of authority? That, doesn't, that seems like a very artificial way. And so if I then take the all that I read in verses 4, uh, 5, 6, these passages, verse 4, that God desires all men to be saved, to see who wants everyone in authority to be saved. That's just the automatic connection. And then in Calvinism, well, then everyone in authority is going to be saved because it's ultimately just God's will and man doesn't have really any say, so to speak, in it. That seems very artificial to me. It just doesn't fit the context. Um, and as you read on in verse 6, it says, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified to in due time. It just seems very inclusive. God wants everyone to be saved is the implication. Second Peter 2.1, here's another verse. It says, but there were, this is a really interesting verse. There were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. Now it's talking about the false teachers who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Uh, in the Calvinist theology, they'll say that Jesus, his actual purchase was only of the chosen ones, the elect. It was never intended to be for everybody. That's typical Calvinist theology. That's the L of tulip, limited atonement. Now, I would think that Jesus' purchase is for all people, all sin, of all kinds. That doesn't lead to universalism. Read your Bible. <laughs> if you're, yeah, well, that's another conversation some other time. And some Calvinists think that leads to universalism. I think you're just being silly and you need to stop. <laughs> that's not the case. Um, but here's the Calvinist response. Because we're, we're saying Jesus bought false teachers. He paid the price for false teachers. So what's the Calvinist response to this? Well, they would say it only means bought in the sense that the teachings of Christ delivered them from worldly lives that they were living. And then they, can, then they went into the church after being delivered from these worldly lives and started teaching false things. Here's the problem. That's not what bought means. Bought doesn't mean delivered. It means bought, like purchased. Bought is used about 30 times in the New Testament, this Greek word bought, do you know how many times it means bought as in purchased? Every single time. Do you know how many times it means anything like delivered? Zero. I looked up every use. It just doesn't mean that. That is very forced. This is a convenient interpretation that does not fit the language or, or the context. He bought them as in he paid a price for the purchase of them. Here are some examples of the same Greek word, agorazo, and it's used of God making a purchase. Revelation 5.9, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, 
You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed or bought Agarazzo to us or bought us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Obviously, we're talking about salvation, a purchase of salvation. Revelation 14, 4, these are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were Agarazzo, redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the lamb. 1 Corinthians 6, 20, for you were bought, Agarazzo, you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So in, in all of the uses, it never means delivered. It, it always just means purchased. Like I paid a price to get something. It's typically used in the Greek when someone goes to the marketplace to buy something. That's what it's typically used. Uh, it just means bought. So 2 Peter 2.1 seems to, seems to be a, a very serious passage that if, if, you, if I was a Calvinist, I would feel I've got to come up with a legitimate interpretation, not a, not a redefining of a word in order to deal with this passage. doesn't mean that they were saved. It means that the death of Christ actually paid for them. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Let's look at another one. Speaking of Jesus, did he, did he really mean to die for everybody? It says in 1 John 2, 2, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, and, or not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Not only ours, but the whole world. I mean, the, the plain-faced interpretation of this passage would be, Jesus died for everyone, <laughs> everybody, everybody, the whole world. Now, the Calvinist view, you might be able to guess because it's similar to what we heard earlier. It's that Jesus didn't die for the whole world inclusively, but died for the whole world as in for people from every sort of community in the world, for certain individuals in all the different communities of the world. My response that seems completely forced on the passage. It just seems fabricated in order to sustain a theology that this verse doesn't seem to support. Similar interpretations are offered a lot like that in Calvinism. So you take any, any phrase that says something, something, God loves all or everyone or the whole world, and it always just means, you know, people from around the world, not the whole world, not everybody. First John 4, 14, they'll interpret this the same way. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. And they go, well, the world just means certain people in the world. And that doesn't seem to be the plain interpretation of the text. It seems forced. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I think that the Calvinist has to start to get very creative with this passage. They have to say, for God so loved the world, meaning certain people spread out through the world. God loves them. Um, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, and by believes we mean whoever God regenerates and then they automatically believe in him. They're not like choosing to trust in him exactly. They're, you know, they can't trust in him and then God makes them born again and then they can't help but trust in him. So, but in the, in the mind of the Calvinist, this gives God the glory. But let's pause for a minute on the, on the talk of God's glory and let's just say this, but is it what the scripture teaches? And it's not. It's not. I think it gives God glory to just let the scripture just teach what it teaches. Here's another verse. 2 Peter 3 9. 2 Peter 3 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Calvinist has to say, 
when the text here says God's not willing that any should perish, what it really means is he's not willing that any of the elect should perish. So now, now I, there, are, there is a, a saying that I, I want us to learn, right? You, you may have heard this before is all means all and that's all all means. That's not actually true. Okay, sometimes all means all of these people or all of those people or things like that. But these passages seem to mean all as in all people, all humans, everybody. That's what they seem to mean um, in, in context and all that. Um, so the Calvinist says it's just any of the elect in 2 Peter 3.9. That doesn't seem to be supported by the text. You have, to, you have to come in with that idea and read it into the text. That's the wrong kind of Bible study method, in my opinion. Let's deal with another issue. Um, do humans really have a choice to accept or reject the gospel? Or is the Calvinist view of total depravity in the sense that, here's the view, you are so hateful against God, you are so lost, you are so dead in your sin, you're like Lazarus. And Jesus, he calls out to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out of the grave. And Lazarus, do you think Lazarus could have said no? No, of course not. Dude, you're going to do what he just told you to do. Like, you're going to come out of the grave. The thing is that Lazarus is an analogy. It's not actually a teaching. Like, this is an analogy there. You don't make arguments from analogies. Right? You come up with a teaching, and then you have an analogy to illustrate it, but you don't argue from analogies. That's like, welcome to every cult in the world argues from analogies. Talk to a Jehovah's Witness about why they don't believe the Trinity. They'll argue from an analogy. Well, I'm not my son and the father. And you're like, dude, you're not, that's not even the doctrine of the Trinity you're arguing about. And so we, we shouldn't argue from that. That's, that's not smart. Um, so the belief is that you are so depraved, you are so lost, you are so hateful against God, that what God does is he actually regenerates you first. You actually get born again, and then you believe. Or perhaps as a result of being born again, like the moment of your being born again, now you're believing in Jesus. Because now that you are saved, you are, you can't help but believe. This is irresistible grace. So total depravity, irresistible grace. We've talked about limited atonement, unconditional election. I don't agree with any of the doctrines completely. There's pieces of them I like, right? But, but I, I wouldn't say I'm at any point uh, Calvinist because when I get to the real nitty-gritty of the points, I go, they all really have the same point, that man has no free will in his salvation. And I don't think that that support, is supported by Scripture. Though they're my brothers and sisters, this is a place we can disagree and still fellowship and all that. So, does man really have a choice to accept or reject the gospel? Or is, it, or is Calvinism true where it's just like you, just, you reject it until God regenerates you and then you accept it? End of story. Um, or is it that faith comes and as a result of our faith, he saves us and regenerates us? Well, Ezekiel 33.11, Ezekiel 33.11 says this. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? If you just read this casually, if you just simplistically, it, it sounds like God is calling out to people. He's appealing to them to make a choice, to turn from their wicked ways, and then he wants to bless them, and they will live. He won't take pleasure in their death. Oh, but he will kill them. <laughs> this is judgment will come, but he doesn't want it to be that way. And he lays it down into their decision making. Now make your choice. Like behold, I set before you this day, life and death, choose whom you will serve. There's seems to be choices. This is throughout the scripture. He places Adam and Eve in the garden. 
He tells them what he wants and he lets them make a choice. He already knows the choice. He's already made a huge plan factoring in all of our choices, but these are real choices. Luke 7.30, it says, But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, having not been baptized by him. Let me read that again. The Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, having not been baptized by him. They didn't repent when they heard the preaching of John, and they rejected God's will. Does God allow us to, at least on some level, reject his will for us? Yes. He allows us to do to make these choices. Now, he knew it would happen. He planned it all in. He's got his sovereignty in there. He's got his predestination in there, fully intact. But he also has our will intact as well. God really allows man to have free choices that God does not want us to make. But God doesn't give up his sovereignty in this. His sovereignty is still secured. I have a huge, high, high view of God's sovereignty. He's planned for all those things, and he will be glorified no matter what. From the moment he created the world and the, all the factors he put into it and all that and his inner workings of, in, in man and in life and all that. He's totally sovereign. So here's my solution. Um, I believe both that God elects and predestines and that man has free will to choose or reject Christ. And I believe it's what the Bible teaches. And I think that I've hopefully made at least something of a case for you guys to think about in that regard. Um, I really think it's what the Bible teaches. Now you might go, Mike, how do I reconcile God having full sovereignty and yet man having free will. God electing people for salvation, yet people choosing freely to, re- to receive Christ. My thought is this. First, two thoughts. First thought is this. You don't have to reconcile this. You have no need to reconcile these two things. Personally, I never felt a tension there. I just figured that's what it teaches. I believe it. You, don't, you could just literally affirm and go to sleep. Lord, you're sovereign. You're in control of everything. I can trust your big plan. But yet, you want me to make choices to follow Jesus and to be his and to preach the gospel to people like they have a real choice to make about Jesus. And then go to bed. That's fine. You can just affirm it and go to sleep. This is a comforting and humbling thought that in theology, I don't have to understand everything and explain every question. I can simply take truth from the scripture, say that's true, and that's my theology. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, I do think we have some options as far as how to try to reconcile these issues. Um, Personally, I've never honestly seen a huge controversy here about sovereignty and free will. I've known people who really struggled over it, and I was like, I don't know what your struggle is, man. Like, I I just honestly don't see the problem. Um, So that's where I'm coming from, so forgive me if I I treat it lightly, but it's only because I've just never seen the problem there. Um, My first thought is this. Let's not say that either God chooses or I choose. I think that's an artificial thing. You know, like, I chose my wife. She chose me. We chose each other. And if someone goes, well, which one of you really chose? (laughs) Um, us like we both chose each I don't see a problem between two free will agents choosing the same thing I don't see I don't see a problem with that Um, so I don't I think it's artificial and we try to force an issue there that doesn't exist but I do think we have options Um, I I think we have options and one of those options is what we talked about last week this is just a possible option you don't even have to ascribe to this you don't have to believe this you don't have to think this you can just go to sleep but We, we learned in God's foreknowledge last week that God knows the what-if knowledge. He knows that if he had made it so that every man on earth was one inch taller, 
how that would change the world and, and how that would change everything about the world. It really would. Little things would, would just be different here and there. He knows that if, if um, uh, you know, Thomas Edison had never been born and his inventions and, I mean, we, where would be, be without peanut butter? I don't know. Didn't he do peanut butter? No, that was Jefferson? No, Carter. Carter? That was... Oh. Carver. I'm editing this out of the video. I don't want to... Think of a better illustration instead. What if the Wright brothers had never existed? Would this have changed, you know, when we started having commercial airlines because it set back our time, perhaps? Anyway, that's a better illustration. I'll use that one in the video. <laughs> so you've got, you've got God who, who not only knows all the factors, but he chose to create this group of people. Imagine if God had created a world where it's the same world, but every human in it is a different person. Like you didn't exist. A different person existed. You see, God created all of these things, allows us to have free will, but in his, in his knowledge of what would happen if, 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 if this, he creates this world ensemble, this particular version of reality that is the only real one. <laughs> and, um, and I think that in that, God can factor in the things that would allow him to be electing, selecting, predestining, and still allowing free will at the same time. I, I think it's a great way to harmonize these ideas. In a philosophical sense. And that would mean if God does it this way, if the Lord does it this way and he selects making the universe just the way he did, that he has a sincere call for salvation to everybody, but he knows who will choose him. And he knows the world he created the way he did and all that. He's elected those he's predestined. But it means that God's election is one way. I made this world with a view towards those who would be saved. A call sincerely, knowing who would receive me, choosing those ones, as well as creating those ones in the first place, putting his sovereignty way up there, and then enduring those who would not be saved. Not selecting them for reprobation or for damnation, but simply enduring them. And that's exactly what the scripture seems to teach. There's these words of predestination, of calling and election only for the saved. But when we get to Romans 9 and we talk about the unsaved, there are all these passive verbs of God enduring them and patiently waiting and dealing with them, and then finally they're judged, but the sincere call for salvation seems to be there. I think that free will and sovereignty can be married together that way. Um, in that sense, I would say God does not predetermine all of our responses, but he does predetermine all of his works, and he works everything together according to his plan, including knowing all that we're going to do. How could he not be totally sovereign in all these things? Um, so I want to affirm predestination. I want to affirm election. I want to affirm God's absolute sovereignty and his choice of individuals and groups, actually. And I want to affirm man's ability to say yes or no. And that seems like the plain reading of the text. Like if I just dropped the Bible in the middle of some foreign country where they spoke whatever language it was I had the Bible translated in, and then they just picked it up and built theology, I doubt they would come up with, with Calvinism. I think that they would come up with a, a view towards man's free will and God's sovereignty together. Um, Father God, let us, let us be able to affirm the scriptures. Let us not divide over issues, but at the same time, let us not miss the point of your sovereignty. You are in control of all things. Though you allow free will, yet the free will of man will not thwart your ultimate decisions and your plan and your predestination. And we rejoice in this because that means we have a salvation that is secure and that we can rest in you and we can trust in you. And we can say God is good, God is in control, no matter what. In Jesus' name.
Well, if I could share just a final word on this stuff, I'm not going to be. Uh, I'm dealing with Calvinism because these issues come up in the text as we're going through Romans, <clears throat> but I don't feel like it's my mission to talk about Calvinism. I'd much rather talk about other things in all honesty only because I find them to be more valuable more worth arguing about um, we should be able to fellowship with Calvinists we should be able to fellowship with non-Calvinist Arminianists if you're a Calvinist and you can't fellowship in sweet love with non-Calvinists there's something wrong with you if you're an, if you're an Arminianist or, or, or a Calvary Chapelian or whatever we are <laughs> and you cannot fellowship in sweet love with a Calvinist something is wrong with you these are not dividing issues. They're great issues to discuss. I like to kind of, I like to hear the best Calvinist arguments and the best Arminianist arguments and everybody, everything in between. I love to hear these things and think about them. We're really struggling to understand big issues. And there are other verses that are worth bringing up to deal with Calvinism, but this has not been, a t been focused on. Let's examine all of Calvinism. But I, I wanted to take election and predestination and talk about it so that we could get these things uh, down and then move forward going through Romans. So we'll keep doing that. When we hit Romans 9, we'll just, we'll just go verse by verse and teach what it teaches. And, and if we're all Calvinists at the end of Romans 9, then praise the Lord. Um, yeah. And we'll have sweet fellowship. And we'll have sweet fellowship.